Welcome to People Doing Physics, the podcast that explores the personal side of physics of the Cavendish Lab here at the University of Cambridge. Hi, I'm Simone Sagre Barker, a PhD student studying experimental physics here at the Cavendish. And I'm Paolo Molignini, I'm a postdoctoral researcher in theoretical physics here at the Cavendish. Joining us this month is Dr. Tiffany Hart, Senior Research Associate in the group of Professor Ulrich Schneider here at the Cavendish Laboratory. Tiffany is an experimental physicist who works with ultra-cold atomic systems. These are gases of neutral elements like rubidium or lithium, which are cooled down to incredibly low temperatures and used to probe with extreme precision fundamental properties of quantum matter, which would otherwise be inaccessible in other kinds of experiments, for instance, in material science. She has done research at the University of St. Andrews, Oxford, and now Cambridge, working on all the aspects of ultracold experiments, from devising optical traps to performing quantum simulation of exotic lattices to engineering the next generation of cooling and transport instruments. Her latest project is very ambitious. In a consortium of seven UK universities, she's trying to build a new type of interferometer with the ultimate goal of detecting dark matter and gravitational waves. Tiffany is also a very passionate outreach communicator, She's interested in finding new and creative ways of presenting her research, for instance, by combining it with dance or devising board games inspired by the physics she sees in the lab. Her goal is to make science fun and understandable for a range of different audiences, from children to adults. In today's episode, we'll talk to her about the challenges of devising experiments at the limits of zero temperature, on how to find motivation when experiments break down, and how to navigate postdoctoral life in and out of the pandemic. Stay with us. So welcome, Tiffany. <laughs> it's really nice to have you here. Could you tell okay. us a bit about um, your background, like where you're from and where you went to school and how you kind of got into physics as a child? Yes, and thank you so much for having me. Um, so I am originally from um, South Lincolnshire, so not far from Cambridge. Um, I always loved reading. I loved fantasy books. I don't think I was particularly interested in any one specific thing, but I just wanted to learn everything. I think mm-hmm. when I was very young, I was convinced I was going to be a scientist and a ballerina and a vet and everything, all, everything all at once. Have every single kind. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind how talented I was at any one of those things. Um, but yeah, I always, like, throughout my childhood, just really loved reading, particularly loved reading fantasy books. And it was really from there that I became more and more interested in science because it seemed as though that was the closest to magic that Mm. I would ever be able to get. Um, So the kind of one series that that really stuck with me and kind of sparked the the journey into physics was Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials. Mm. And um, so I'm sure lots of people are familiar with the books, but the kind of premise is that you've got these um, parallel worlds and you've got the influence of um, all sorts of kind of particle physics going on. Um, Dark matter features quite prominently towards the end of the the series as well. And um, there were some really fantastic companion books written about the the physics and the science behind um, the series. From that, I just started reading more and more about it. And so, yeah, read the companion books, started reading other popular science books, and decided from there, this is 
this is the direction I want to go. Um, I'd say possibly in, in high school, I wasn't convinced actually that physics was necessarily the subject I wanted to take. Um, mm. my, my teachers were fantastic. It was definitely not because of them. It was just that I think... Um, the curriculum... How yeah. it's structured, yeah. Exactly, I, I think... Yeah, in high school, it's like Newtonian mechanics. Yeah, yeah. yeah. let's Super throw this ball stuff. and see how exactly. it lands, yeah. <laughs> yes, a, a lot of Newtonian mechanics, a lot of measuring resistance. Um, but what I really loved was um, physical chemistry, or the kind of atomic physics that we did in, in chemistry and maths, and gradually realised that the things I was interested in would fall into a physics course later on, mm -hmm. so decided that that's what I wanted to study at university. Mm -hmm. um, so I, yeah, went off to, to study physics in St Andrews, which was absolutely kind of perfect, um, perfect undergraduate experience for me. I mean, it's, it's really cool that like you, your interest in physics started off from that world of fantasy and then trying to see like, what's the closest that we can get to, to <laughs> yes. you know, magic on earth, um, yeah. you know, in the real world. It's, it's quite interesting that that's what drew you well, in. Well, I guess like advanced science is almost indistinguishable yeah. Yeah, there's that for magic. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. Ooh, so, yeah, I mean, what you're doing now definitely sounds like magic. <laughs> oh, yeah, so we'll talk about it. We'll get yeah. to that soon. So um, after high school, you decide to study physics and then move to St. Andrews, like we exactly, said. Exactly, yes. Um, so how was your experience there? I really loved pretty much every aspect of my experience, my undergraduate experience. Um, obviously, there are times that are stressful, especially around exams. But for me, that environment was perfect. It's quite a small city, um, a fairly small university, and the department really seemed set up to support the students. It felt, yeah, I think there's just so much commitment from the teaching staff to making sure that students were supported. Um, it was the kind of place where you could go and knock on your lecturer's doors if you got stuck with something that they'd mentioned in, in the lecture and you really felt that if you were prepared to put the work in to try to understand, they were prepared to go, you know, any lengths to, to try and help you with that. Mm -hmm. So. That was a fantastic supportive environment and they really made an effort to bring undergraduates into the research labs as well. Oh, wow. nice. So they had really nice um, funded studentships over the summer, which I think quite a lot of universities do, which is a fantastic scheme. Um, and yeah, from that I was able to spend some time in the labs and yeah, I remember going down the very first lab tour um, when I was being interviewed for one of the summer project positions, and it it really did feel like like magic. I think <laughs> I said something really embarrassing, like "Oh, it feels like I'm walking into some like magician's <laughs> magician's room." That's not um, <laughs> <it's just> enthusiastic. <laughs> Probably should have stayed inside my head, but um, <laughs> no, it was just such a great great place to learn both physics and kind of how to be an adult mm -hmm. as well, and kind of grow into a researcher alongside that. And that's when you first had your encounter with cold atoms as well, right? Yes, exactly. You had like a project involving laser beam shaping for traps. Um, can you explain a bit about that? Yes, so this was um, both my first summer project and um, I also ended up doing my final year undergraduate research on, on a similar topic as well, um, was using spatial light modulators to um, shape a laser beam um, to create kind of interesting trapping patterns for light. So I guess... Can you tell us a bit more about this trap? Like, what are we trapping here? What, so we are trapping... 
either individual atoms or collections of atoms. Um, and the idea is that if you've got laser light, then that exerts a force on particles and that can, um, depending on the wavelength of the laser light and the species of, of the atom that you're using and, and the energy transitions in that atom, can either be an attractive force or a repulsive force. Okay. Um, so you can either um, yeah, trap, trap the atoms in the regions of high intensity of laser light or repel them from mm -hmm. those, those high intensity regions. So it's using the, this um, spatial light modulator, which is um, I think it's a very similar technology to what is used in projectors, okay. um, where you've got these, this kind of array of, of pixels um, and a liquid crystal um, layer and charge is given that will align the liquid crystals either you know kind of um, parallel to or perpendicular to the um, direction of the light that's coming in so it will slow down different parts of the light by different amounts kind of across the across the surface and you can end up using that to shape the intensity mm -hmm. so trap the them in a particular way that you're you exactly cool. so I was interested in yeah seeing what kinds of patterns I could make um, and in that first project it was really just about the fun of mm -hmm. seeing what kinds of patterns I could make, seeing how good I could make them. It felt like a puzzle game more than work, I think, mm -hmm. at that time. Um, and it's really nice now seeing how lots of elements of that work actually still just keep popping up mm. through all the work that I've done since then as well. Um, unfortunately now having to worry a little bit more about how the atoms are responding to the light <laughs> as well. So at St. Andrews, you were part of a regular journal club, and it was one of the papers that you presented in this journal club that then led you to find your PhD group, wasn't it? Yes, that's exactly right. So um, it was really great in that group. They really got project students involved in every aspect of the group life, including presenting it at journal club. And I was terrified reading this paper and presenting it to people who knew a lot more about the subject than I did. Um, but yeah, it was a really interesting paper um, written by a research group in Oxford, so it's um, Chris Foote's group. Um, the paper was about um, creating vortices in cold atom clouds. And I don't know what it was about that paper, but something something about that caught my imagination and I thought, okay, this sounds interesting, let's, let's read more. Mm -hmm. So um, yes, I applied for lots of different research groups for, for my PhD. I knew that I wanted to stay in cold atoms, um, that kind of captured my heart in a lot of respects, and um, that was yeah, that group accepted me, so <laughs> that was um, that worked out well, and yeah. So then I moved to Oxford for my PhD. And so during your PhD, as often as the case in experimental science, as you were saying before when we were chatting about your um, pre in our pre interview discussions, that um, there were some experimental setbacks initially mm. <laughs> uh, or that it wasn't you yes. know you arrive and everything just works and then everything's just smooth sailing from that's there. science folks yeah. <laughs> it's, it's classic science equipment's um, so down. were you were you yeah. building your setup from scratch or like how many of you were working together on the same experiment what was that like so yes when i joined um i didn't realize for a little while um being very new and not really knowing what to expect um there had actually been a bit of a a disaster in the lab a couple of months before I joined, where um, there'd been an accident involving um, some coils overheating, um, which had damaged quite a large part of the apparatus. So it's an existing apparatus, work had been going on on that for 
several years by that point. Um, but at this point, um, it just wasn't working. We didn't have cold atoms. Um, and yeah, so that was um, a little bit daunting to, to come into. But um, I learned one thing very, very early, which is that interlocking is extremely important. Safety measures, mm -hmm. <laughs> protecting your experiment as well Safety as the first. people. Yeah. Yes, the first thing you should set up. Um, and in lots of respects, it was a useful experience rather than walking into an experiment that just worked and I could just press a button and mm -hmm. papers come out. Um, you know, actually learning how to debug mm -hmm. a really complicated system was an extremely good learning process. Um, not one that I would... Repeat. Rush to repeat. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it definitely was, um, was useful. Um, mm -hmm. And I think one thing that was very important for me, kind of in, in the bigger picture of, of that, was... Um, that I had kept in touch with my old group in St Andrews as well, and we were carrying on the work on on laser beam shaping, and it was just really nice to have that continuing, have a the additional support as well of you know a kind of independent <laughs> independent team as well, um, and to be able to keep feeling like you're making progress even when things in the lab were going slowly. Mm -hmm. We having those small wins elsewhere, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Um, I guess having a few things going on in your life outside of the PhD as well. Um, mm -hmm. It's yeah, also parents. extremely <laughs> important. Um, but yes, we did eventually fix the experiment. Um, in fact, we managed to rebuild it better. Oh. So that was <laughs> sort of that's always the mm -hmm. the goal. So um, and yes, and that's that's running nicely now. Um, so it was. It was nice kind of over the course of the PhD to know that we've built back we built it back a lot better than it was, able to then go in some new research directions. And of course, most importantly, being able to fit in some kind of new research in mm -hmm. that PhD as well. Yeah. I mean it sounds like, you know, a, a tough time to be dealing with frustrating experiments and I'm sure many people working in experimental uh, scientists, including myself, can relate. <laughs> but I guess what advice would you give to a student or just anyone who mm -hmm. might be in a similar situation who might be dealing with, you know, a lot of experiments that are working or troubleshooting equipment that, you know, just keeps, you keep finding more and more problems um, or people that feel a bit isolated in their research and maybe don't have um, like the, like the, you know, the side mm -hmm. projects or like the, the you know, mentors in, in other institutions or people who might just be generally kind of struggling with their PhD. Because clearly, you know, you continue despite all those adversities. I mean, you're, you're here right now still <laughs> yeah. working on cold atoms, so you managed yes. to make it through um, and and you kept that passion for the research that you had. So I guess, what would you say to those people who might be where you were or in a similar position to where you were, like, you know, in the middle of the PhD and everything? Mm -hmm. Not ideal. I guess, yeah, there are a few different elements to that. And one thing that you mentioned is really important is the, the people. Mm. Um, the so, community. Exactly. Yes. And whether that's within your research group. So during my PhD, I was really lucky. Um, students started the year after me. Um, we just worked fantastically well together. And we managed to kind of pick each other up when when one of yeah. us was <laughs> lacking in motivation. So problem shared is a problem cut in house, right? Exactly. Yes. So in the ideal situation, you have that within your research group. Um, and that makes things a lot easier. Um, I think if you know, and I'm sure for some people, unfortunately, that support within the research group might not be there. Um, 
and it can be difficult to find that support mm. elsewhere, especially if you don't already have kind existing of existing links. Yeah, yeah, kind of that existing network to fall back on. But at that point, I think it is worth looking around outside your group. Um, you know, looking at the wider department. I think um, one thing I really noticed about moving to Cambridge was how much people talk to each other <laughs> within mm. the department and being able to find someone who works in a similar area, whether that's just to talk to and talk ideas through or have some support, or whether it's someone that you can actually start collaborating with and mm -hmm. feeling like you're making progress with. Um, but I think one other important thing is to remember that you're not necessarily trapped into a single PhD. Um, you know, it is obviously a huge decision if someone does want to move to a different supervisor, a different subject, that if you feel that something really isn't working, then sometimes that might be the best route. Um, that's not a decision that I made in the end. I did decide to, to stick it out with that one subject because I think really because I just really deep down, kind of never lost the interest in cold atoms and I, I never stopped wanting to make it work. But I think, you know, kind of, you will know whether, whether you... When you've had enough. <laughs> yeah, whether it's still worth it to mm -hmm. you. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with saying, you know what, actually, mm -hmm. this isn't worth it anymore. Yeah, I mean, one of our previous interviewers, yeah, um, Diana Fusco, she changed um, kind of her research topic halfway through her PhD and, you know, still works in academia, still is a very successful Yeah, yeah roads to success are very <laughs> yeah, varied. And exactly. it's not yes. as if you get stuck at a certain point, it means you cannot go forward. You can just yeah. move to a different direction and find, mm -hmm. there's always a way of finding a solution out of uh, a problem. And that solution might not be the, the most straightforward one, but there's always a way of going around things. Mm -hmm. Yes, but yeah, definitely having something outside of your PhD to Remind you that you're a human with a full Exactly. Life. Exactly. <laughs> yes, it's, it's so important. Despite all the uh, adversities of your PhD, you still like physics uh, <laughs> and you're still motivated to try and do a postdoc. So then you apply uh, for and obtain a position here at Cavendish in the group of Ulrich Schneider. Um, so what were your first thoughts when you arrived in, in this new lab? Um, I was astounded by how clean it was. <laughs> <laughs> So actually, that really struck me at the interview. Um, walked into the lab. This is what this is what made me decide this mm -hmm. was the, this was the position I was accepting. Was um, the lab was just spotless and clearly very well organised, and the students were showing me this lab interlocking safety system they had and how all of the different um, protection circuitry worked. And I was like, wow, no coils are going to melt here. <laughs> um, so. But yeah, so when I actually arrived um, to, to start my job here, I, um, it was, I, I was quite lucky that I started um, with building a new experiment with a whole new team. So um, I was the uh, first postdoc and then there were two PhD students starting at the same time as me. So that was really nice that you know, we could build the experiment together. I think sometimes- From scratch. Exactly, from scratch, um, we had the chance to, I guess, make our own mistakes or, mm -hmm. but you know, everything was kind of 
our design choices, whether they were mm -hmm. good ones or bad ones, <laughs> or <laughs> you know some that we might have made differently. It's probably um, easier and also nicer to just um, kind of oversee the the whole experiment from the very beginning, right? Yes. It's also kind of a different experience than what you had in your PhD, where you just arrived and the equipment was already there and it was yes. broken and you had to fix it. <laughs> yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, it was just so much fun being involved from the design process. So it was great having um, Ulrich as a PI on that experiment who had loads of ex experience we're still very involved in the experiment and still very you know, interested, but also gave us the space to do some of that design ourselves, make some mistakes. I'm sure he was looking on thinking, oh, that, I think no, they're going to work. That. <laughs> <laughs> Back to me about <laughs> this <laughs> thing. <laughs> but, you know, always stepping in, you know, if, if we needed a push in the right direction. And I think that was a really great way to learn how to build an experiment and, and kind of gradually learn how to manage a lab as well. Uh, so your first project was on quantum simulation of Kagome lattice for flat band physics. You're going to explain what that <laughs> is. is. Yes. <laughs> um, so can you, tell what, can you tell us what that means and what were the goals and what do you discover in, in that project? Yes. So um, I guess to take quantum simulation first. Um, the idea behind quantum simulation is that you trap some cold atoms in an optical lattice, which is the pattern that's formed when you overlap laser beams and you get an interference pattern. So um, similar to water wave interference on, a, on the top of a pond, you can create these really intricate patterns depending on the geometry of your laser beams. And um, we're making a Kagame lattice, which is uh, kind of a, like a tiling of, of star shapes. Um, we can also make just by um, changing our laser beam configuration, turning beams on and off, we can make um, hexagons or triangles. Um, you do this in 3D? Right? So Just we're like making conf uh, one or two-dimensional layers. Okay. Like um, pancakes of these like, uh, uh, 2D like lattices. Yeah. Yes. Um, so, and, and long-term we're going to kind of isolate the particles into just one layer of, mm. of that lattice. Um, and yeah, the idea behind quantum simulation is that you're trapping your atoms in some optical lattice, whatever geometry you're interested in, and you can study the way that the atoms will move, interact, um, and those atoms are being used to represent some other physical system. Um, the most direct analogy is um, to um, like the behaviour of electrons in real materials. So in um, a condensed matter system, you will have electrons that are moving around, experiencing some potential from the iron lattice in, in, the a, in a crystal lattice, like in a real oh, yes. material. Um, yeah. Like in some yeah, crystal structure. And um, that will, you know, how, how those electrons are affected by the lattice will um, influence a lot of the material properties. Um, but that can be very difficult to study directly. You know, if you want to change your lattice, there you've kind of got limited access, you know, whether you're applying very large magnetic fields or like trying to strain your system, it's experimentally very challenging to do, although lots of researchers do look at studying those systems directly. Um, the other route is to simulate them computationally, and that gets very complicated or extremely challenging because you've got lots of interacting particles, and those particles are, all have these, this like very complicated quantum 
behaviour that would be very difficult to reproduce computationally. So the idea with a quantum simulator is that you're building this experimental simulation of that system and um, you can measure it fairly easily just with high resolution optics you can um, get very good imaging of the way that the atoms are moving in that system. Um, in, in our case the atoms are kind of representing the electrons that are moving in, in the solid state system and um, you can change your lattice by changing the laser beams, um, you could introduce you know, some kind of imperfections into your lattice um, and you have a lot of control over your system so that you can then go on and you know, really try and study and understand. Um, the atoms will also incorporate the quantum mechanics um, mm -hmm. as well because um, that is a, a fully quantum system so we're kind of baking in all of the original properties but in a way that is a bit Very easier controlled, to yeah. Yeah. Like yes. a lab within system. a lab. Exactly, yeah. yes. <laughs> um, so I mean, there are of course limitations, it's mm -hmm. not an exact replica of the real mm -hmm. systems and you're losing a lot of the kind of messiness um, which is sometimes really important to try to capture but it can give a lot of insight into the way that um, those solid state systems will behave. We now take a short break from the interview to present to you the latest news coming out of the Cavendish. This month we talk about a new technique to look inside lithium-ion batteries. Clean and efficient energy storage technologies are essential to establishing a renewable energy infrastructure. Lithium-ion batteries are the most widespread kind of rechargeable batteries. They are found in all our electronic devices, from phones to tablets and laptops, but are also promising candidates for reliable grid-level storage and powering electrical vehicles. Think of Tesla's Powerwall, for example. It is therefore very important to improve their charging rates and lifetimes. To do so, scientists need to be able to understand the changes occurring inside an operating battery. This helps in identifying the physical processes that limit battery performance. Currently, visualising the active battery materials while they are operating requires sophisticated synchrotron X-ray or electron microscopy techniques, which can be difficult and expensive, and often cannot image quickly enough to capture the rapid changes happening in fast-charging electrode materials. Scientists from the Cavendish, the Department of Chemistry and the Faraday Institute have now overcome this problem by developing a new low-cost lab-based optical microscopy technique to study lithium-ion batteries. The team examined individual particles of a type of niobium tungsten oxide, which is among the fastest charging anode materials to date. The technique works by sending visible light into the battery through a small glass window. This allows the researchers to watch the dynamic processes within the active particles in real time and under realistic non-equilibrium conditions. In their study, published in the journal Nature Materials, they observed the front-like lithium concentration gradients moving through the individual active particles, resulting in internal strain which caused some particles to fracture. Particle fracture is an important problem in batteries because it can lead to electrical disconnection of the fragments which reduces storage capacity. This new optical microscopy technique has high throughput capabilities and enable the researchers to analyse a large population of particles, revealing that particle cracking is more common with higher rates of delithiation and in longer particles. First author Alice Merriweather commented that these findings provide directly applicable design principles to reduce particle fracture and capacity fade in this class of materials. The key advantage of the methodology, rapid data acquisition, single particle resolution and high throughput capabilities will enable further exploration of what happens when batteries fail and how to prevent it. 
The technique can be applied to study almost any type of battery material, making it an important piece of the puzzle in the development of next generation batteries. If you want to know more about this study, check out the links in the show notes. Welcome back to our interview with Dr. Tiffany Hart, Senior Research Associate in Ultracold Atomic Physics here at the Cavendish. So let's talk now about your most recent experiment, what you're up to right now. You're part of the AION, AION, or however you pronounce it, project, which stands for Atom Interferometry Observatory and Network. So what's this project about and, and how did it come about? Yes, so um, there's actually a lot of disagreement even within the collaboration how to pronounce it. Oh, good. <laughs> so <it's me. laughs> so um, I always pronounce it AON. Um, so yeah, the AON collaboration started a few years ago, um, kind of grew out of um, other consortia working on um, trying to detect fundamental physics using quantum technologies in general or more specifically cold atoms. So there are kind of similar experiments with slightly different goals or complementary goals in um, uh, elsewhere in Europe, um, also in China and the US. Um, and so yeah, the, the AIM collaboration itself formed um, a few years ago trying to you know, put together a grant proposal. Mm -hmm. um, it had been ongoing, I think, probably for about a year or so before I joined. Um, so, yeah, my, my PI, Ulrich, had heard about this exciting new project. Um, there was a meeting in London that he sent me to, um, you know, just learn, learn more about what they were proposing. And I was sitting in this... Um, this kind of workshop thinking, oh, wow, this sounds amazing, using quantum physics to try and actually kind of complement particle physics or high energy physics mm -hmm. and try to, you know, understand if there's this kind of any anything else that we can learn about fundam uh, fundamental physics or standard model physics, um, rather than just the kind of applications that I was used to in um, understanding quantum physics, which is, of course, itself um, very exciting, but it was just, yeah, so nice to hear about all of these new applications. Yeah, it seems like quite an interesting crossover, like, not one that you'd expect yes. of, like, you know, astronomy, and, because you were saying that before, that always for dark matter, gravitational waves, like, probing those types of fundamental physics. Yes. Yeah, so one, kind of one would expect, us. like, big telescopes yeah. and, like, not big like, particle oh, accelerators. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so I was sitting in this workshop hearing about dark matter, dark energy, gravitational waves and thinking, well, oh, this seems very unfamiliar. And then there's a talk about um, kind of the atomic physics technologies that would be needed for this. And suddenly I was like, oh, wait, this all sounds very familiar now. Mm -hmm. um, because fundamentally with a lot of these cold atom experiments, the underlying techniques are very similar. You need to cool atoms down. You need to trap them, control them, move them around. And... Um, it was very fortunate that one of the kind of gaps in in the plan at the time was something we'd just been working on in the Kagame lattice experiment, and so yeah, I, I talked to um, the the PIs involved in that project. Um, I was quite lucky that um, my PhD group was involved in the project, so of course that does make it a lot easier if you already know someone within the collaboration to just Become start that conversation, yeah. um, and. Yeah, um, managed to, I guess, make a convincing enough case that we could bring something new to the project. Um, so, yes, we um, 
within Cambridge, we're working on um, cooling atoms down, transporting and um, controlling atoms, and um, kind of basically getting that kind of preparation step ready for kind of the, the detection measurements. Um, there are other groups in the consortium who are looking at kind of specific other aspects of how to improve the sensitivity of a measurement. Um, and then we're kind of coming, looping back in at the end, looking at some of the detection side of the cold atoms as well. Um, so I guess in terms of all the technologies that have to come into building this detector, um, the idea is that you have a cloud of cold atoms. We, in, in our case, we're using um, strontium atoms. And this, um, and, and you, split this cloud of atoms in two using a laser beam. So you, you create a superposition of a ground and excited state. And these different um, atomic states have different a different momentum. So um, they'll travel along different paths in space. And um, as they travel along these different paths, each of these um, states will evolve slightly differently. So mm -hmm. you can imagine it almost like the little uh, little clocks kind of ticking away and, and they'll just evolve differently according to the the path that they see and then when you combine those clouds again at the end you can look at how they um how they interfere with each other look at you know a physical pattern that is being formed and use that to infer the difference between what those paths have seen if one ha was interacting with a gravitational wave for instance it would have like a slightly different path and then the recombination when you do the recombination you would see that signature so yes i mean more generally it can be anything that will change the the evolution of the mm. state so um we're actually planning to use um two or or potentially more of these individual clouds that are split and recombined so two or more individual interferometers um, separated by a really long distance. And that is where the kind of sensitivity to these astrophysical phenomena um, comes into play. Because, um, for example, with the gravitational wave example, um, if a gravitational wave is passing, um, then that will kind of stretch and compress space-time. And that would change, for example, how long it takes um, a laser beam, that, the laser beam that we're using to create all of these um, interactions and, and um, create the superposition of um, states, it would change the amount of time that it takes for that laser beam to pass from one mm -hmm. interferometer to the other. And we'd be able to pick that up as a variation in the kind of difference of the signal between these two interferometers. So by using two, um, we can really expand out the, the kind of distance that we're studying and get better resolution really importantly as well um, by doing this differential measurement between two interferometers we can um, cancel the laser noise that we would mm, otherwise right. introduce because as soon as you're trying to measure these really small signals any noise source that you're introducing and this is the same for you know kind of more established experiments like LIGO as well um, you know the amount of work that has to go into noise reduction is, mm -hmm. is quite incredible. And what kind of distances are, you, are these two clouds at? And is that something that changes with the experiment that you're trying to run? Um, yeah, so that's that's a great question. And that is something that we're kind of, it's, it's ongoing really. Mm -hmm. So um, at the moment we're building a prototype device to check that all of the different elements of the technology will work together. Like a proof of um, concept type of exactly. experiment. Yeah. Yes. Um, we're 
going to then build a um, detector that has a 10 meter separation between these two interferometers. So mm-hmm. you know, still kind of a, a manageable scale, it will be inside a building. Um, and so that will be hosted at the University of Oxford. And um, then we're going to scale that up to 100 meter separation. That's a big tower. <laughs> yes. Um, so yeah, kind of work is ongoing at the moment, trying to find the best sites for mm-hmm. either a 100 meter or a kilometer long um, oh, wow. tower. And the longer the, the distance, um, the more sensitive we Does can it be, be very broadly. Distance or can it be flat? So we are planning to go with um, vertical distances, mm-hmm. but there's um, an experiment in um, in France that is looking right. horizontally. Mm-hmm. So you c- could be either, you're, you end up looking at slightly different things mm-hmm. um, and have slightly different kind of challenges and constraints for yeah. the different configurations. We're looking as, as well, there are some um, theorists or uh, phenomenologists at um, King's College London who are looking at all of the kind of fundamental physics side and looking at, for example, you know, if, if we put multiple interferometers, not just two, one at the top, one at the bottom, but multiple in between and, and looking at um, what kind of optimal spacing that would have to maximise our sensitivity to different kinds of signals mm-hmm. as well. Well, this field is in its infancy, so we can expect in the next 10 years to have like a boom of different technologies developing and looking at different things. And Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Um, so we have to be on the, the lookout for all the like, <laughs> all our listeners yeah, new news. Um, so I, I would like to switch gears slightly now and focus on another big part of your career, which is outreach and public engagement. Um, when did you first start to have an interest for public communication? So I think um, I've always enjoyed talking about science and and reading about science and I think it was quite a natural transition as I gradually learned more to kind of that for that to turn into sharing how much I was excited by science um so that really started at the very end of my undergraduate and, and then much more during my PhD I guess thinking back to um what we were talking about before about you know, sometimes getting through a difficult time during your research. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, actually, one of the, the really big things was um, getting more involved in public engagement work and, again, just feeling like you were doing something, you know, um, kind of rediscovering the enjoyment for science that got mm-hmm. you into it, which, um, now I say it like that, sounds like a horribly selfish reason to um, get involved. But um, I just, yeah, really enjoyed talking to people about, my research, thinking about ways to make it engaging and interesting. Um, So I was very lucky during my PhD that there were a lot of existing structures that were around that you could slot into, get training. I think um, without that training, I would have really, yeah, really (laughs) struggled to get involved or to feel confident um, talking about my work. and yeah, I just enjoyed thinking about different ways to, to present it. So yeah, you seem to find very creative ways <laughs> to, to uh, merge science with your hobbies. Uh, one involved highland dancing, right? Correct? Yes, that's right. Can you right. tell us a bit so about that? That, um, that was um, describing co- the idea of coherence in lasers uh, via the medium of highland dance. So this first occurred to me during a dance class. I was taking a highland dance class. Um, it's back in my undergrad, and it was the same time as I was learning about lasers. And um, I think we were, I think we were learning the Highland Fling at the time. And I was thinking, you know, 
as I was slightly out of step with someone next to me, oh wait, this seems this a lot like, 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 hearing it's like yeah. out of coherence. <laughs> exactly. And then thought, okay, so this would you know, the, potentially this could be a really fun way to um talk about about lasers. Um so much later on, um during my PhD, I um had the chance to um you know, present some work and um got some dancers together and we performed a kind of laser coherence version of the Highland Fling. Um, that ended up, um, you can find it on the internet buried somewhere. Oh, we I might put it in the, <laughs> yeah, in the show notes. Yeah, send us uh, yeah. the link. <laughs> Click the link below. <laughs> but then that ended up evolving into something that you know, I wanted um, people to be able to get a bit more involved in. So I ended up changing the dance routine a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of turned into something that I would put in maybe in, in the middle of a um, talk if it was with a, a smaller group just to kind of get people moving get people feeling um, a bit engaged and also a little bit kind of refreshed mm-hmm. maybe in the middle of something that um, yeah. yeah as a technical talk yes the day, so, yeah. exactly that's really cool um, so yeah I think and the more kind of public engagement that I did the more I enjoyed it the more, more confident I felt mm-hmm. um, and I when I when I came to Cambridge, that was definitely something that I wanted to get involved with. With um, something I asked at um, all my interviews as well when I was interviewing for postdoc positions was, would you be okay with me continuing this work? And I think that's really important as well when you're looking for a job to make mm-hmm. sure that there is an availability. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Like if there is something that you know you want to work on, um, that 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 will be possible, and um, again. There are lots of really great structures existing in in Cambridge to kind of help anyone who is interested in getting involved um, with public engagement work. Um, So I was uh, lucky enough to um, partner with the Jesus College Intellectual Forum. Um, They've hosted some of my events. So um, and this has been as part of the Cambridge Festival um, where we've run um, workshops for primary school children. uh, that was inspired by some amazing work that's coming out of Imperial College London. There's um, an artist called Geraldine Cox who runs absolutely incredible workshops. Um, I was lucky enough to um, join in with one of those and, and talk to Geraldine about them. I kind of then adapted some of that for, for the Cambridge Festival and developed my own workshops out of those. Um, and yeah, then started to think, okay, how can we maybe... Kind of get this idea of quantum simulation across because that always seemed a, a difficult one to to explain because there are so many different elements that come into it. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, for well, this is um, a, an event planned for the Cambridge Festival pre-pandemic um, ended up being postponed mm-hmm. multiple times, um, but we finally managed to um, present that. Um, this year for the Cambridge Festival was a, a board game mm. um, exploring quasi-crystals and four-dimensional space um, and the quantum simulation experiments that are going on in um, another experiment in my research group that I don't work on personally. But um, So just... a quasi-crystal, just to make things clear, is a, a, a structure that repeats itself, but it's not periodic. Yes, right? that's exactly right. So um, there is some order in there but it's it's not a nice regularly repeating crystal um the i think the the one that 
people might be more familiar with is the Penrose tiling, for instance. Um, and so, yeah, the um, work that's going on in the lab is kind of about, um, or in part, exploring some of this kind of four-dimensional maths that can be represented on this two-dimensional crystal. Mm -hmm. um, and so I thought, okay, how can we how can we represent this? Um, worked with some students from that experiment as well, and we developed this. Mm -hmm. this board game, game. Like, can can we download it? Is it online? Is it? I'm a physical thing. Can you print it? Like, how does it? Work? So I'm hoping to make it available either online, either mm -hmm. as an online game, or something that people can access. Um, at the moment, it is. Um, in, so my, one in my house. Okay. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's definitely something I'm hoping to oh, roll awesome. out um, and, and yeah, expand because that was just so much fun. Um, mm -hmm. It was really fun seeing people engage with it. Most importantly, it was really interesting to get people's feedback on ways that we could improve it. Mm -hmm. I guess that it, we could make it give you a new perspective well. on the work itself as well, to have to Definitely. explain it in yeah. such a yes. different way. <laughs> sometimes you're so focused in your own research that mm -hmm. you don't see how to kind of look at it from a different perspective and then engaging with the public would give mm -hmm. you so much new perspective that something yes. that you wouldn't be able to think about on your own because you're just so focused on mm -hmm. your own experiment. Definitely. And talking to other people like both you know whether it's other scientists or um you know people who are attending the public engagement events people who are interested in science that's where all the the good ideas come from really mm -hmm. just being open to having those discussions and yeah for, for me it's always going for a walk mm -hmm. um, you know if i'm kind of yeah especially if i'm stuck on a work problem it's actually interesting how just going for a walk sometimes Thinking of a way to, you know, as for example, um, the other day, thinking about some um, technical problems with the um, Aeon interferometry system um, and went for a walk, started thinking about um, representing atom interferometry for primary school children and started planning out an activity for jewellery making, which I'm very excited to try out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and then suddenly found that by the end of that, I'd actually... That's all also solved yeah. the, the kind of engineering problem that I've been thinking of. So it's, yeah, amazing how all of those ideas come together. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Tiffany. It's been absolutely great to learn about your work and all these other really great ways that you're thinking about science. And I'm definitely looking forward to when that board game hits the internet. Yes, we want <laughs> to that learn board about game. the quantum simulation. <laughs> we want to play in quasi crystals. Yeah, thank yeah, you so much. so much. Thank you. Thanks to our guest, Tiffany Hart, and to our producer, Chris, for this episode. The news today was brought to you by Jacob. If you want to learn more about what's being discussed in this episode or want to join or study with us at the Cavendish, please go to phy.cam.ac.uk forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening in to People Doing Physics. If you like the podcast, please subscribe or leave us a review. We would love to put your questions to our team of physicists. Send us your most pressing ones on Twitter using the hashtag PeopleDoingPhysics. You can also email us at podcast at phy.cam.ac.uk. We'll be back next month. Bye! Bye.